0: Hello, gang. This podcast is brought to you by swag.com, S W A G. That's right. Those fun gifts that you like to send your customers and your employees. What's super cool about swag.com is that they're the first platform on the planet to have a turnkey software as a service solution for large companies. Their customers are Google, Facebook, Starbucks, Netflix, Amazon. You go kind of right down the list and they're basically helping you manage your swag in a super efficient and a very elegant manner what's particularly cool about swag.com is that they can manage your inventory for you so you don't need to dig it out of your closet they basically will store the inventory for you in one of their facilities which are scattered around the country and you just log into the portal you can either make a new purchase or you can tell them to send some of your existing swag products to certain people and you can send to one person or to 200 so it's a very cool platform that just kind of removes all the messiness with um picking packing and particularly shipping swag i'll also mention that i'm an investor in the company because i like the product so much There's no other solution out there that's so technology-driven and just solves so many problems in the very archaic, old-school world of swag. So they've offered a discount for uh, Friends of the Podcast, and the discount code is simply BOB10. That's B-O-B-1-0, B-O-B-1-0, and you'll get a 10% discount using that on their website, which is swag.com, S-W-A-G.com. This podcast is also brought to you by All33's Back Strong Chair, which you've heard me uh, talk about before, and apparently we are pushing a lot of product for them through the podcast. This is the best chair ever, and I do not say that lightly. The name comes from the fact that this is the first and only chair that allows for the movement of all 33 of the vertebrae in your spine while you sit. I have used uh, fancy chairs over the years and not so fancy, and they all seem to disappoint in their own special way. And I'm sure you've experienced the same. Either the saddle feels good, but the arms don't, or the back doesn't move enough, or my legs start to lock up, and so on. I've been using the All 33 chair for just about a year, and it has completely removed my lower back pain and my general fatigue that I get when I sit too long. It's essentially slouch-proof. The saddle moves, which provides ergonomically Correct support for the lower thoracic area and also promotes ideal posture. The saddle isn't fixed like most chairs, and instead, it sort of moves in the same direction as your ball and hip joint. Uh, and of course, we all know that sitting is indeed the new smoking, and you need to sit correctly and need the right chair to do it for you. The folks at All33 have a $100 discount for Friends of the Podcast, and you can go to all33.com forward slash discount forward slash Bob to get that discount again, all33.com forward slash discount forward slash Bob. Hi, all My guest today is Alan Patrykhoff, founding father of venture capital and author of a new book entitled No Red Lights, Reflections on Life, 50 Years in Venture Capital and Never Driving Alone. Alan and I dig into his new book uh, as well as his ethos on life, and we cover a veritable and literal potpourri of topics that had me feeling super inspired for many hours after our conversation. Among other topics, we discuss his love of music and how he started a discotheque in the 1960s, why he missed Woodstock, and the fact that he attended Burning Man a couple of weeks ago. We also hit on why Alan is always optimistic and the importance of making room for a whole life by doing spontaneous things and not just working all the time. For example, Alan is a fan of taking people up on last minute invitations to dinner or an event, uh, whereas most of us perhaps would simply politely try to decline the invite because of short notice or we would make an excuse because our workloads are always there and they're ever present in front of us. Alan and I also discuss how he Founded New York Magazine with a couple of other folks, and eventually rose to be chairman. Uh, we hit on his first fund called Decahedron when there was, in fact, really no VC industry at the time. We covered his longtime uh, friendship with Sir Ronald Cohen, who is who is also a um, quite a legendary VC, and how the two of them, in fact established the venture capital industry in both the UK and Europe, we then transition and we discuss a bit about Alan's family and how, in fact, his father left the Ukraine as a four-year-old boy, and he ultimately um, landed in the United States in Ohio and eventually found his way over to New York City selling remnant clothing and working on wall street as a broker until the age of 89 and some of the lessons that he learned from his father as well as his mother alan also had so many great pieces of advice in the book for example life is cumulative think about that for a moment if there's any project you're working on it most likely is the result of a number of years work worth of work or effort or relationships or knowledge that has landed you in the spot you're in at the moment. Some other great nuggets from the book are that the next best thing to yes is a quick no, particularly if you're a founder trying to raise money. Not to count on a cascade of miracles when running a startup, when instead you have to, you've got to measure, measure, measure. Um, when taking a meeting, don't think of it as a transaction for you. Instead, think about how you can help the other person and just many more great nuggets and morsels of wisdom. Um, I will also mention that he said he responds to every phone call within 24 hours, which is amazing because I don't do that in my work life and I should. Uh, and then we then we transitioned the conversation, of course, the world of investing since that's his... Uh, that's his background and his uh, his career. Um, we talk about how he sizes up early stage companies, how he looks at risks and rewards, risk and reward, uh, as well as a discussion around Alan's latest fund, which is called Primetime Partners, focused on the over 60 population or the quote-unquote ageless generation and how his fund is investing in companies that are coming up with solutions and experiences for this particular cohort and generation. So I I hope you enjoy this and are inspired as much as I was. It was a fantastic chat. We covered a lot of ground. Go and read the book or listen to the book. It is fantastic. It will keep you inspired for many hours and days. Enjoy. The Bob Johnston Podcast. So I thought we could start uh, talking about your love of music. I I love your love of music, and and I suspect perhaps that um, some folks who are listening may not know that you have had this passion for a number of decades, and um, would love to hear how it has impacted your life and your world, and maybe even your business. One of the moments in the book, which I absolutely loved as well, is is um, you describing how in the 60s you would travel out to the Hamptons in your Wall Street suit, and you would pull a bit of a Superman, and you would change into your, um, your bell-bottom pants and your shirts that were buttoned very low. So we definitely want to hear about that, and um, as well, of course... Uh, in the book, you mentioned that you missed Woodstock and that you uh, are planning to attend uh, Burning Man this year. So would love to hear about all of those things. I realize a bunch of questions wrapped up in one. All true. Lots of questions wrapped all, up in there. All true. Uh, you know,
1: how and why I got interested in music, I really can't explain, except I really was a devotee of folk music uh, in the in the midst mid 60s, let's say. And uh I I happened to get divorced uh, in 67. And I was a bachelor between 67 and 70, which in my opinion, uh, was the greatest time in my lifetime of those those three years. And I still am like a kid. I'm still living in the late 60s. Because fashion and music and and you know even in politics it, it was a very very exciting time and I happened to be have been chairman of the board of New York Magazine at that time which put me front and center in New York uh, you couldn't have had a, a more visible position and then I I started this discotheque which came about by accident because I knew a couple of people in Wall Street who were friends of mine who were thinking about doing this so I jumped on board uh so I so the you know 67 to 70 and you know folk music uh, I as I say I had always been interested in from way back uh so uh I guess your first foray was starting what you're referring to in 1961 when I uh rented town hall to give a folk singing concert, which was a crazy idea. But, you know, I had come out of the army uh, and uh, I figured before I go to Wall Street or back to Wall Street, I want to try to become an impresario. Uh, And uh, I was lucky in that it failed uh, because of the newspaper strike. So I went into a financial career instead. But a lot of Uh, my life has always been infused with music, and I happen to have have a very, very close friend who is probably the leading rock promoter, or maybe I should say was, uh, because he's like me in his mid-80s, although he's full-time still, but his name is Ron Delsner, and he was, was very famous in New York as Ron Delsner Presents and you know, whether it was the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or Led Zeppelin, uh, he, and I, he and I kind of been friends forever. And so as a result, uh, I'm about one of his only friends that likes going to concerts. So I go to a lot of concerts and I'm backstage in a lot of places, whether it's Madison Square Garden or Jones Beach or uh, Forest Hills. So. Uh, you know, it's, and it's left me with, uh, a a strong feeling. And, and, and most currently, uh, in where I live in East Hampton is a very well-known place called the Stephen Talk House, which is in my book. And that's like the venue. It's probably the only venue, but it's, it's certainly the venue. Uh, uh, Once you pass Southampton, that really has exciting music going on almost seven days a week. And uh, I'm probably there at least when I'm out in the Hamptons, at least uh, one or two nights a week, at least. Uh, And, uh, you know, I'm the oldest person in the place. Uh, I become friendly with the owner. At one time, Ron Delson and I tried to buy it, uh, which was Not possible. Uh, I went to last Saturday night to their 35th anniversary celebration for their friends, of which I'm one. Mm. Uh, So that's the answer to your question about my involvement in music. Uh, I've never done it uh, uh, for a business, although I did have one investment. Actually, the first investment we made at Greycrop was in a company called Pump Audio would uh, produce what is known as sounds like music sounds like the rolling stones sounds like the the bgs but it's not and it was a compilation of just average generic music that sounded like and which advertisers and movie people could use as alternatives to paying for stars uh and having to get the license rights, which are very, very, very expensive. So uh, that is the one music investment, I guess, that I've made.
0: Can you talk a little bit about optimism? It, it seems to me that you are an incredibly optimistic person, and, and that is true ever since I've known you. And, and we're in a moment in time here at the macro level on a global perspective, whether it be around social justice, whether it be around politics, whether it be with what's happening with the economy, what's your, what's your sort of brand ethos, if you will, in running your life, maybe not brand, but what's your personal ethos in running your life, and how does optimism play into that?
1: I, I think it's a great question you're asking. I, I would sit, start out saying, uh, you can't be in the venture capital business and not be optimistic. I mean, if, if you don't think positively, I mean, uh, we, you know, you know, well, as well as I do, you know, in the venture business, you got a lot of problems, a lot of failures. As I've said many times in nineteen uh, 2000, 1999 to 2001 or two, uh, every week, there was some company uh, in a portfolio that couldn't be payroll. So uh it was tough times to go through uh and I think you had to keep your chin up and uh, think about the positives and not just focus on the negatives and so uh, but I have lived my life which is why I wrote the book uh, which is the title of no red lights is the fact that I have uh, more than being positive or complementary of being positive is I just love to take advantage of opportunities whether it's in producing a show at Town Hall or whether it's to start a discotheque or whether it's to uh, uh, get involved with an in international uh, development or get involved with politics. Uh, I have always had a great curiosity about life around me and one of the reasons I wrote the book was uh, to inspire young people, and I'm not going to define it, but certainly you know the 20s, 30s, whatever 40s, uh, to say don't become myopic and just focus on one aspect of the world, but be open to see what's going on around you and and uh, taste the opportunities. you know, if someone's yeah. telling you there's going to be fireworks, uh 25 miles away from here with some great new person jumping out of the sky you know drive down Uh uh interesting you speak about music uh i just found out east hampton had now has music on the beach every tuesday night and uh i was there last tuesday and i'll be there this tuesday uh,
0: that's great
1: the, the, uh, you know it's it's as opposed to saying which is the normal reaction damn it, I'm busy. Uh, I wish I had known in advance. Uh, All right. I'll, I'll do it next week. Uh, I I don't put anything off for tomorrow that I can do today. And that goes along with a positive attitude and uh, being open-minded and curious.
0: Yeah. Um, who was Arthur Ross and what impact did he have on your career, particularly as a, precursor to your venture investing well I can't give Arthur credit for
1: venture investing I uh, he was one of my employers he I worked for him for seven years uh, uh, he was the head of the, the group uh, called the central central National group uh, he was the president of it I was a uh, bite I grew grew from a lower position up to being the number two was vice president of it. Uh, and uh, you know working with him uh, taught me very fundamental uh, aspects of investing period but I you know I also got a lot of that from uh, previous employers and uh, I I my whole early career was working with people like Arthur who were very fundamental, value-oriented, Investors, which you would say, how the hell could that get you into venture capital if you were working with value-oriented investors? Well, it's a it's a fair question. I think the only thing I can say is it it gave me some grounding that I have applied in terms of group meetings of of being able to being someone as you know. Have you thought about? or have we checked this or, you know, is this getting, are we getting an adequate return for the risk we're taking? And I think those fundamental traits I learned. Uh, and, uh, but the reason, uh, the only credit I would give to Arthur Ross is the fact that when I was at Central National, we were focused on public market stocks. And I, I, was the only person in the organization that when we got opportunities to do private investments, nobody else was interested in it. And that's how I got into New York Magazine. That's how I got into mm-hmm. broadcasting. How I got into into Datascop Corporation. Uh, I was the one uh, of the in the organization uh, uh, before I was there. They would just take pieces of. Private deals every once in a while, and put the papers in a in a file cabinet. We did file things in those days, uh, paper paper uh, records, and uh, no one ever even thought about it. and Probably most of them went away, or nobody, no one even knew what they were. But when I was there, I was intrigued by that, and I used that opportunity at Central National to to hone my skills in in making several private investments that lit my you know, light bulb up and, and made me think this is what I want to do.
0: Can you explain to folks what Decahedron was?
1: Yeah, Decahedron was the first partnership I put together when I started Alan Patrickop Associates and it got the name because I had 10 clients. Nine of them were uh, high net worth family groups. And the 10th one was a, uh, two and a half million dollar fund that I put together of about, I don't know, 10 or 15 families who invested, uh, or individuals, high net worth individuals who put in a hundred or 150,000 or whatever it was. Uh, and, uh, uh, so I had a little, a little kitty. The other, the other nine clients were, uh, uh, family groups who paid me a retainer and a carry, uh, but and they had an option. You might say, you know, they were a, a, a pledge fund. It wasn't we didn't call it that, but they didn't have to go into the deals. Whereas I had, uh, I was the general partner of Decahedron, uh, which yeah. meant which means tenth side. Yeah.
0: How did you come up with with your business model there? I had read in the book that um, you were charging. Clients a retainer of twenty five thousand dollars, I think, per year, and then I believe it was a two and twenty in terms of carry, um, or I guess in terms of management fee and carry. Did you did you make that up on the fly, or were there other funds or uh, folks uh, that were using that as a model?
1: Invented it on the fly. I didn't know you know there were no funds or or related. The reason I did is because. I, when I went into business, I realized that there were many groups around like Central National Corporation that had nobody following private investments for them. Mm -hmm. Yet they did these deals every once in a while, but you know, just because they were a friend of someone and they had had money, Uh, Central National had a lot of money. Uh, And so uh, I said, there are a lot of people like Central National uh, I'll be their external advisor just for their private deals, and I'll look at stuff that comes to them, and I'll show them deals and uh, uh, operate on yeah. a regular basis, so that I knew I had my nut covered for my first two years in business. I
0: mean, you know how how common was it at that time um, to be focused on private company investing? Were there was there anybody else that was doing it no
1: there was but as far as i can recall the venture capital industry became venture capital in the early 70s like 73 or 74 when the nbca was formed but yeah it, it was the deal business that that's how it was referred to primarily and uh uh you know, I invented, it. I, I I came up with this concept out of whole cloth. Now, there were other funds. I mean, uh, I haven't done a total research, but, you know, Kleiner Perkins started around that time. Uh, I don't recall whether Sequoia had. Uh, Davis and Rock, which was probably among the most prominent, uh, started then. Uh, Warburg Pincus, uh, uh, TA Associates, Peter Brook up in Boston, but, mm-hmm. you know, there were, I wasn't the only person doing it there, were, you know, but it was the industry, there was no industry. I mean, it was maybe 10, 15 groups and uh, there were institutions were not allowed to invest in venture funds at that time because oh, wow. there were uh, restrictions on how they would have to classify Not just the investment in the fund, but the underlying assets of the fund, which made it very, very complicated. That that rule changed in 1977. So until that time, institutions were really not a a major part of the business.
0: Gotcha. So I guess um, once that once that rule changed, then I imagine a lot of institutions were jumping to the game. But you had already you had been doing it a while, and you had cultivated a network. So so I imagine... Private uh,
1: private, of high net worth individuals and family groups.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, Can you chat about your friendship with Sir Ronald Cohen, who is indeed a sir because he helped to establish the venture capital industry in the UK? And I'd love to hear you talk about uh, your own recognition, which is the Legion of Honor award uh, that you got from the country of France, and just generally talk about the friendship you've had with the Sir Ronald over the years. And I'll mention that I had done a podcast with him maybe a year and a half to two years ago, thanks to your kind connection, if folks would like to listen to that.
1: It's funny. It's funny you should ask that question, which I don't get asked very often uh, at all. Uh, But tying them together is interesting. Uh, In 1976, I was approached by Ronald, uh, who was not Sir Ronald at the time, uh, who had set up a little operation in, in uh, London uh, with two partners that he had met at Harvard business school, one in Chicago, and one in, in Paris and uh, uh, the, the third, the partner in and it was to do uh, M&A transactions with the idea of someday becoming a merchant bank and investing. But at that time it was purely doing uh fee for hire. Uh, and, uh, uh, the individual in Chicago decided to drop out and go back. I think he became a professor. I don't know what he did. And Ronald was coming over to the U.S. to see if there was someone who would like to be the third leg of the, of the, of the stool. And uh, we got to know each other. And I got intrigued with the idea that uh, overnight I could be international. I could have an office in New York, an office in Paris, an office in London, And part of the deal was putting my nameplate of Alan Patrykopf Associates in their uh, lobby or on the front of their building. And uh, I had a small investment banking operation, very small, like theirs was small. So we did investment banking between Paris, London, and New York uh, under the name of MMG, which was their day. And uh, the idea was they were going to someday go into venture capital under the name Alan Patrikhoff Associates. And uh, uh, we ended up doing that in London in 1981 and France in 1982 because it was just not, the industries was not, were not ready for it in Europe. Their risk-taking was an anathema to most people in Europe. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, it's a lot better today, but... Still, never like the United States is in terms of risk taking, and uh, uh, many years years later, I you know when I left the firm, and uh, Ronald left, and Maurice uh, left. Uh, Ronald went into impact investing, uh, and uh, he uh, was knighted by the Queen, uh, and Maurice Chenio, the fellow from Paris, was given the Legion d'honneur uh, by the French government. And, uh, interestingly, I, you know, I was the person that started all this venture activity, both here and abroad, but there was no such comparable award here. So I was just commonly referred to as the legendary Alan Patrickoff So Sir Ronald Clone, Maurice Chenyo the legend on air and Alan Patrickoff the legend, uh, which you get by just living long enough and being in the business long enough. And, uh, uh about two or three years ago, uh, a French banker said to me, you know, you started venture capital in France. Uh, I let, let me submit your name for uh, consideration for the Légion the, 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 the being knighted works differently. Uh, so I was, uh, uh, you know, two or three people wrote supporting letters and President Macron uh Made me a Donner I haven't worn the pin yet because I haven't put a suit on to to be able to use it. But uh, I'll have to figure out and uh, find out if it'll if it'll get me into a French restaurant someday if I wear it.
0: Have the Have the two of you decided as to who won the battle um, as to whether your business partnership was planned at an Italian restaurant or a Chinese restaurant? Oh, he, or is that he, is that still on the fence?
1: He's the one that came up with the with the fortune cookie, but I he tells I me, mean, how can it be a fortune cookie and, and then the name of the restaurant's an Italian restaurant, so I don't. But it's 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 uh, you know, it's a it's a tale that will continue to be told. But Ronald and I, in particular, are still very very close friends. I was just with him in France uh, a month ago, and yeah, vacation, and he was over here in New York.
0: And just so folks know the inscription on your fortune cookie is that you will make money with your friend and uh, clearly the two of you have over the years. That's true. Can we switch gears a bit and talk a little bit about your father uh, who left the Ukraine when he was a boy moved to Ohio because your family had cousins there um, and your dad had five siblings. Is that correct?
1: They were orphans. They, 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 they were
0: orphans. Okay,
1: You know the the story. He was so young; no one ever could tell me the exact story. Some told me they 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 died in a fire, but others told me they died in a plague. Uh, uh, whatever it was, they there was a pogrom going on at that time. And, yeah, uh, they were living about a uh, hundred kilometers outside of Kiev.
0: And uh, then he made his way to New York and uh, he was selling um, clothing remnants for a number of years and uh, worked on Wall Street.
1: You really read the book, boy, I tell you.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it. No, this is fascinating, right? And so you think about his path and and he, he was a broker, by the way, on Wall Street until the age of 88 or 89, I believe oh. I read in the book. Yep, yep um so I guess when you were watching him what were the sort of what were the lessons that you learned just watching him work over the years you know and the tenacity and the integrity to get things done you know, well, support the family oh you
1: know, I, I Bob I want to be honest with you I you know because I get asked this all the time you know what did you, was your father your icon was he was he you know what did you learn from him? my father was not a great teacher uh, I uh, I don't I don't want to make him more than he was. My mother was a wonderful, uh, uh, easy uh, person to be with. My father was a very difficult person. And mm-hmm. I think he was always somewhat bitter about the fact that he had grown up in poverty and uh, uh, even didn't really take as much satisfaction as he could have over my success. Because I think to a certain extent, maybe it was jealousy or whatever. He just never... Mm-hmm could handle it. Uh, But what I, I guess the character, uh, my mother was the one who, what I described to you very early on about how I am as a personality. She was like that. She would do things. She was very positive, optimistic and uh, curious. My father was more sedentary. Didn't exercise. uh, Was not interested in anything except, you know, sitting in the, ultimately sitting at his desk and being a stockbroker and reading the stock news. Uh, so I can't say I really learned that much from, other than say he did tell me, don't be on the selling side of Wall Street, be on the buying side. So right. that, I I never forgot that one and, and practiced that. Uh, and the other thing is uh, he did not believe in, remember it was the depression where he came from. He did not believe in borrowing money. Uh, he did not have a credit card. If he couldn't pay cash, he didn't buy anything. Uh, you know, Obviously, they had checks, checkbooks, but uh, he did not have a mortgage. He, uh, he was very, it's not a question, just frugal. He just did not believe in extensive credit. Uh, and, and so I personally... I can't attribute it to him, but I've never had a mortgage. <laughs> and I've never, and God forbid, the person who pays my bill doesn't pay America Express the day we get the bill. Uh, I pay every bill the day I get it. Uh, and uh, I don't, uh, you know, I don't like interest charges. And I don't, I never had a margin account. I, I, it wasn't maybe the, go into the private equity business because I'm not as comfortable with leverage. Um, And if you think about it, while venture capital is very risky, it's almost all financed with equity. (laughs) Uh, So, uh, which is probably the highest risk of all. Uh, But uh, so I I can't say, so I have a couple of characteristics, uh, but my father was, in some respect, he was always helpful to people. And uh, so maybe I picked up that uh, quality.
0: Yeah, and well, that, that certainly is one of the maxims that I took from the book, is that if you're taking a meeting with a person or, or you're having a phone call, you know, don't think of it as being transactional. Just think about how you can help that person.
1: And, and I do practice that.
0: And, uh, yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, you say there are a lot of things in this book that are traits that I – uh, I've learned over the year that I practice religiously yeah. and, uh, you know I'm, I'm, for example, like I say, I pay every bill the day I get it. I uh, answer every telephone call I get within 24 hours and if I, I I always tell people if I don't return it either I didn't get it or something's wrong, you better call again. <laughs> uh, but I, I really try.
0: Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about investing. Um, You are known for a focus on the fundamentals. And I'm curious, how how do you look at a company that that is more than likely pre-revenue? It could also be pre-product. And sort of over the years, how have you developed a set of KPIs or metrics to take a look at companies that are this early and somehow or other measured the fundamentals how have you developed your nose if you will to sniff out the good opportunities versus the bad ones
1: well you know Bob, i said to you before in some respects my uh, value oriented training gets in my way but the only way it, it applies is it does give you a sense of putting things in perspective and reality and you're absolutely right uh, in the venture business and most investments, I mean, we we just it was announced the other day. We uh, just uh, sold. We're part of we one of the investors in Axios, which got sold. I guess was announced the other day, uh, and that was a deal I actually did. Uh, and it was a startup of a new uh, a new concept, a new uh, concept of newsletters, uh, and so there was there was nothing there they they, you know they didn't have any financials to analyze but you know first of all if you've been in the business a long time this this expression of pattern recognition really is true so you do have some things whether it's the management or whether they're what they profess that they want to do and how they're going to do it uh what the economics of the business should be if they're successful uh And uh, my background just gives me a little discipline. And it also has coached me, and I miss things because of it, uh, of understanding risk and reward. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes you're taking an insane risk, and the reward potential is just not that great. And so I think I apply these principles that I've developed in trying to measure risk and reward uh risk versus reward and uh it doesn't apply 100 percent, but it does give you a little bit of balance and uh you know it, uh, yeah. we i i became very friendly with david stern over the last 10 years and uh he passed away i guess it's now three years at least uh yeah. and, and he had He's hired as commissioner of the NBA and I got him interested in, in, you know, he was trying to figure out what he was going to do next. It's pretty hard to have something to do after the NBA uh, being commissioner. And I convinced him to come in and sit in with our Monday morning meetings. And he fell in love with the meetings uh, and he Absolutely. fell in love with venture capital. And uh, I even gave him a card at one point and made him an, in, officially an intern of the firm. Uh, but, the reason I mentioned I ask you
0: about that, yeah.
1: <laughs> the reason I mentioned is that David would sit at the meetings and would ask her the dumbest questions, uh, and uh, uh, but they were the questions that other people had that were afraid to ask. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, I can give you all kinds of uh, example. You know, what does A- ARR mean? Uh, right. You know, what is MRR? But is you know and and uh, uh, but he also at the same time would bring into the discussion fundamental business principles and say are you he would say are you guys crazy you know uh, you know it doesn't make any sense to do this uh, and uh, so I, I I bring this in to show you that you know you can apply good business judgment without having uh, necessarily a technology background
0: yeah and that you know that goes to one of the maxims that i read in the book as well which was that um you don't necessarily need people that are around the table who who come to the table with specific skill sets but they may they may have a general purpose kind of personality uh, that brings something to the table or a persona and you can always train them on the details of your business or your industry
1: I don't know, Bob, I think you're probably too young to have known my first partner, Patricia Clarity, but uh, who became, by the way, the uh, chairman of the National Venture Capital. Certainly the first woman chairman. I don't know. I guess there have been some chairmen after her, but we're going, you know, she was there and she was. I hired her out of the Peace Corps. Uh, I hired Ed Goodman out of Bedford-Stuyvesant Restoration Corporation. Yeah. You know, not exactly for profit group, but they were very smart and uh, they made a very important contribution to the growth of the firm yeah. early on.
0: Yeah. Um, one of the other maxims or quotes that I read in the book is that it's one of your mentors says not to count on a cascade of miracles when you're uh, looking at the assumptions of a business. And I love that quote. Um,
1: so do I. That's why I use it so much.
0: Yeah. You know, and nowadays you think of, you know, when you're hearing a pitch from a founder, it's all positive, you know, the curve is up and to the right. How do you kind of level set a conversation with a founder so that they understand they need to confirm facts, they need to have meticulous attention to the details, as you mentioned in the book, and nothing is too small to not look at. You've got to look at every corner of the business, every line. and well, every expense line.
1: Reason I do all that is because the difference between being a uh, being in the stock market, as I've also said in the book, and being in the private equity the venture business is when you buy a stock, if you don't like it, the next day or the next hour or the next minute, you just put in a sell order. When you go into the a venture deal the second you sign that check, you're a partner of the business. You may not be called partner, you may be called investor, but uh, you have become a long-term partner. Uh, You know, there are very, you know, short engagements become long-term marriages. Uh, So uh, one of the things I do is I tell everybody that story from Monty Shapiro is, you know, don't count on a cascade of miracles. I can tell you there are a lot of CEOs Around who are still probably still operating, who will tell you that they heard me say it more than once, uh, and uh, you know also the focus on net cash, net free cash flow. Everybody thinks that they can just keep raising money from shareholders; they'll just keep raising the next round: A, B, C, D, E, F, G. At some point, the investors wake up and say, "You know, where's where's the beef?" Uh, yeah. So these kind of principles are things you try to apply where appropriate. And sometimes, uh, you know, like with a Tesla or with, uh, uh, I mean, I could go, you know, with
0: uh, the public markets, they don't,
1: they don't, they don't don't apply. uh, But, you know, there are a lot of others where they do and uh, uh, it can't hurt to be, you know, use uh, sound principles. When you're making investments,
0: well, and that um, that brings us to one of the other quotes that I really loved from the book, which is you say that life is cumulative, and I and I love that notion. The example that you give is that it only took you about two weeks to raise your latest fund at Graycroft, but in fact, it took you 36 years and two months because you know that's as long as. As you've been moving and and shaking in the venture capital space, and um, all those cumulative relationships that you had, they allowed you to close this this latest fund within a period of two weeks. You're,
1: you're, you're uh, Bob. You 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 really made my day. I mean, you've gotten more out of this book. You you got exactly what I wanted people to get. But I uh, I know the point is people say something looks so easy, but they forget that you know. Where you are today, you, Bob Johnson, as well as anybody who listens to this podcast, they, you know, maybe president of something today, but they're president because they're standing on top of other things that happened in their life, whether, and maybe it started in grade school. I don't know, or maybe being their experience in the military or their experience at college or their first employer, but everything adds up to make you who the person you are today.
0: No, hundred percent, you know, I mean, it really does. And you think about just, just the ability to network um, and to get out there, you know, develop relationships, as you mentioned, and, you know, without an angle, without a transaction in mind and, and whether you're at a lunch um, or whether you're at a conference and you decide, you know, to sit at a table with people that are not within your industry. And if, and if you get one idea from that conversation, or you meet a person who becomes a friend, you know, then it is all worthwhile.
1: I start out every every meeting that I chair or am presenting at or introducing. And I always start and say, you know, if you spend the day here, or you spend these two days here, if you come away with one good idea or one new relationship, or one anything, it was worth the experience. And You know, don't go into something and think that I've got to rush around and get 10 ideas, 10 deals and 10 uh, business cards. Uh, But, you know, make something meaningful that will be part of a life experience is is how I do things to this day. Yeah.
0: one of the other quotes that I loved, and there's a lot of them that I have on the list here, but uh, one of them is... uh, the next best thing to yes is a quick no and of course we can think of all the times where a vc or you know private equity firm or an angel investor will sort of lead on an entrepreneur and they'll take days weeks or even months so i guess how how have you looked at over the years the ability to say no but with without being mean or nasty so within the right tone how how have you learned to say no to folks
1: i you know i uh i i i want to give you the direct answer you know i wrote a blog about oh four five six years ago the blog was title of which was you don't remember me but that was the title And I actually wanted to include that in the book. And the publisher said, incorporate that into the uh, text, uh, which I have done. Mm. But it was saying that, you know, it ties all the things we've talked about. Life is cumulative, you know, how you treat people, et cetera. Uh, I, uh, I used to be very nervous when people would walk up to me. This started about 15 years ago. Didn't start when I was my thirties or forties or fifties, it started later in life. When I people come, there you don't remember me, but I worked for you twenty five years ago. You don't remember me, but you took my phone call when no one else did. You don't remember me when you interviewed me. You didn't. You didn't. You rejected me, but uh, I remember how you treated me. All these things are, are cumulative, and they're part of a reputation, and they're part of building up an image. And, uh, part of it is saying no in the venture business. You are saying no to a lot of people and yes to very few. And when you say no, if you don't say it nicely or try to say it nicely, you can't ever be perfect on this is it's like telling a person that their child is ugly. Uh, it really is. I mean, you know, over a period of 52 years in this business, I've seen some really crazy ideas. And uh, you, if you say to someone, you're out of your mind, this is a crazy idea. It's not going to build you a lot of points. Uh, but if you can say it with humility and with some constructive, you know, approach, I think it builds your reputation. So my point of uh, start saying you don't remember me, but is that I get people coming up to me all the time and I have learned after the, 10 or 15 years, I really, really never get someone coming up and saying, uh, something that I did that was really terrible that they don't remember me. But, and, uh, and I realized it's, it's how you say no, how you treat people, how quickly you return the phone call, uh, handwriting letters. Uh, it's to build up a style that builds a reputation that people think well of you. I was walking down the streets of, of Martha's Vineyard last week, and a guy walked up to me. I, I can assure shoot. I never saw him before in my life. Uh, and he told me his name. And he said, you don't remember me, but I worked for you 25 <laughs> years ago. Uh, and I said, here it is again. Not a day <laughs> yeah, goes yeah. by. There's not a day that goes by. It happened to me yesterday. I went to a meditation session, and a guy sitting next to me at meditation said, you, you don't <laughs> remember me? I,
0: that's amazing. Yeah. It really well, is.
1: If you live to 87, you know, you met a lot of people on the way.
0: True, true. Had a well,
1: lot of, uh, and hired a lot of people, and invested in a lot of people, and turned down a lot of people. And, you know, have well, a big index.
0: That's a good transition over to what you're doing now at prime time. And uh, we'd love to chat, up, chat a little bit on that front as, as well as um, just this whole notion of health, wellness, aging, ageism, which is a real thing. Mm -hmm. would love to get your just general thoughts on that whole area uh, and then sort of what you're doing to solve these challenges with primetime partners.
1: Well, I got the idea about four or five years ago, I decided that gray crop was growing so fast and Uh, the partners had vision of uh, other partners of how they wanted to build it and what they want to do with it. And, you know, I was in 80, whatever it was, 82, 83. uh, And I really didn't want to get into the whole element of being a, building a very big firm at this point. And so I worked out a transition uh, plan, which was over four years uh, and uh, to stay in the firm, keep investing, keep, following companies. Uh, I did Axios during that period of time, uh, as a matter of fact. Uh, but uh, to uh, you know, think about what else I wanted to do for a next chapter, because I did Apex, and then, or Alan Patrick of Associates became Apex. And then I did Greycraft and I wanted to do something else. And I was fascinated with the fact that a lot of my friends were uh, retiring, going to Florida, playing golf, uh, uh or being in some cases forced because firms had policies of at age 60 or 65 you had to leave just at the time when they had the most wisdom the most experience the biggest rolodex and they were saying you know sorry we want to make room for somebody else so i had been talking about it thinking about it uh reading about it uh there've been a lot of studies about it and uh One day, my son came to me, one of my three sons, and said, you know, Abby Levy, who I knew very well, because she had been the first president of Ariana Huffington's company, Thrive Global, which I was on the board of uh, as I had invested in it. uh, uh, I think that may may also have been in those last four years. Uh, And so he said, she's got the same idea and she wants to, she's going to do something about it. And so he, within, uh, here I've been sitting next to her at board meetings, but never really talking about it. And we got together two or three weeks later, we formed a firm to invest in products, services, technologies, experiences, and perhaps media for uh, the aging generation. We Originally I said over 60, I would say now it's, over 50, Uh, post-menopausal. And uh, we've now, we raised a small fund, uh, you know, relatively quickly, but, you know, based on cumulative life experience. And we uh, raised $50 million, uh, mostly from family groups. We had a couple of institutions who were in the healthcare area. And uh, we've made 25 investments so far. And they all are providing something to serve the ageless generation. Uh, and we also decided to become thought leaders in this whole area, which was to run run seminars, symposiums, go on conferences, uh, write about it. Uh, I've just written an op-ed that I, you know, if I'm lucky, it'll get published in a publication. If not, I'll... Do it on Medium or or LinkedIn, uh, uh, but maybe in a newspaper or magazine uh, about uh, ageism. Uh, And I wrote this specifically because I was focused on Joe Biden. I told you I wouldn't talk about politics, but I wrote it because the the piece is not about Joe Biden, but, you know, subliminally it's in there in a sentence or two. But it was saying that, you know, we're at a period of time where there's a shortage of talented people in healthcare, There's a shortage of talented people in, in, uh, in teaching in uh, many professions. And yet we're aging out people and we are talking about being them being too old to do something. When in today's world, at 60 or 70, you're in really, I mean, if you take care of yourself, you're in have a great long life ahead of you i i say in my book i'm going to live to 114 and i believe it and if i'm right someone at 60 has only lived half their life so they've got the second half to deal with uh yeah at 80 at 87 i still have 27 years to go so uh you know they're going to be more people over 60 uh by 2030 that they're going to be under 18 they're going to be Billions of people over a hundred by two, thirty, twenty uh, thirty. Yeah. Those people all have special needs. And, uh, we've got to stop, uh, you know, like ending racism and ending classism. We got to, you know, end this idea of ageism and think about the opportunities for using this talent, uh, uh, perhaps, to, you know, in training the next generation and taking. Yeah. Not letting them go out to pasture where they've got the most to offer.
0: Why is it that you think we as a society and 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 I believe in other countries as well, you know, take uh this, you know, this quote unquote ageless population and and relegate them to the burbs or condominiums or sh- or you know, shared housing in, in Florida or Arizona, where they're sort of stacked up in these communities and they don't have the the ability or the opportunity to to share their their collective wisdom and their knowledge and their history with the rest of society
1: well not every society does that uh, we do it uh, but the problem of the aging uh, population is happening in europe it's happening here it's happening of course in japan and china uh yeah. you know it's not happening in africa uh i know don't, don't, the middle east which is a, a very young population, uh, but uh, we've got to come up with solutions for caregiving, for uh, right, care of them, for entertaining them, for as you said to me before we started, uh, preventing loneliness. Uh, there, you know, and and frankly, everybody uh, on your podcast uh, probably has some relative. Uh, or maybe a husband or wife or a, a cousin yeah. who is going through Alzheimer's or or MS or some some disease uh, if they're not doing it themselves so they're getting they're getting firsthand the knowledge of caregiving and you know yeah. what it takes to do this and how to do it better
0: yeah yeah, you're absolutely right you know these are big issues that we need to figure out as a society and if you're healthy and you are aging we need to find a, a you know proper roles for you to continue to contribute and this will help to alleviate things like loneliness i believe so when when you're looking at companies uh, to invest in is there a particular age mandate for the founders or you know or not
1: no 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 in terms of the
0: it, it's the, really the, the target
1: audience it. it could be anybody but yeah. we also have a parallel objective which we have not succeeded in so far i have to say uh which is specifically to say to any person who has done it before to say go back in the same business all over again uh, and hire people from your previous activity and we'll be interested in investing and we put our shingle out and said that and uh, uh we have not yet Got a, a CEO who had been in the paint business, who wants to start a new paint company, and uh, you know, with his with his extensive contact database and bringing in attractive people who worked for him before, which has a very high predictability of success. Mm. We that said we have backed several entrepreneurs in the ageless area who are in their well, over over fifty. Maybe one is over sixty, but we didn't do it specifically because of their age. Uh, Gotcha. We we got a we got a double header without really specific right. And we we obviously we would love to see more entrepreneurs in this particular category, but uh, we also would like to see someone who who wants to start over something they've done before and have all the energy like in effect i've done you know i started a crop because i had done it at apex i started primetime partners because i had done it at gray crop
0: you had done it before yeah
1: yeah so uh you know who knows maybe i'll have a another firm someday
0: what's your um what's your daily regimen Looking like, I mean, I know that you're training for the marathon at the moment, the New York City Marathon, where you're going to run walk that, and you train with a weight trainer, I guess, two to three times a week. What else are you doing to just stay fit and healthy?
1: I uh, I'm active, you know i i I work <laughs> that yep. kid that keeps your mind. I read, uh, you know, I still read three or four papers a day in hard copy. I uh, I have a bad habit of double and triple booking every night, my nightlife and activity, because I get invited, fortunately, to enough places to do yeah. things. I travel. Uh, you know, I, I don't live a static life. Uh, in terms of what you're trying to get at, do I, I yeah, I take vitamin D3 and I take uh, B12. I don't yeah. think... I don't know what the hell that's
0: doing. <laughs> Taking all the supplements, yeah.
1: I do a couple, a couple of those things, and uh, right. uh, and I don't, and I eat carefully. I tell you one thing I do, which is a little neurotic. I weigh myself twice a day. Once I read time, that, yeah. And I and I, 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 convince myself, you know, if I if I vary by more than two pounds, then I try to skip a meal. Uh, and I skip lunch today.
0: We are coming up on time here, and I wanted to ask you one final question, which is: What are your go-to sources for news and information? Whether it perhaps be uh, websites, or email newsletters, or, or feeds uh, that you are getting, I'd be I'd be really curious to see what that what that looks like.
1: I don't look, I don't check the music industry, but I I read the information. I read Business Insider. I yep. read Axios. Uh, you know what i'm trying to what else you know yeah. but as you said i read the FT, there's a lot out there yeah you know, the ft and the times and the journal and uh business week Forbes. um i try to keep myself posted on what's going on in the world
0: yeah well this was a lot of fun i really appreciate you joining alan thank you
1: for asking me